0: I'm Dmitry Grozabinski from Explained Trade. And I'm John Fowler from International Intrigue. Our main topic tonight will be a debate about whether we in the West should ban or restrict access to the media channels of our foreign adversaries. It's a really complex subject on which both John and I aren't exactly sure where we stand and we're kicking our ideas around even <laughs> in the minutes before we started. But as always, we'll take one side of the argument each and really try to give it our best shot. We'll also touch on our Stories of the Week from International Intrigue. I'll be taking a look at Incursions into Belgorod by... Russian rebels is, I suppose, the best way to describe them, who are opposed to the Kremlin's regime. It's a really complicated story. I'll do my best to to summarize.
1: I've got questions for you.
0: Yeah, I've got questions for me too. (laughs) And John, you're going to tell us about Meta's huge fine from Mm. the European Union over Facebook personal data transfers, which is really just the tip of the iceberg of a much more complicated Issue around the future of data and international connectivity. Yep. But before we get to that, John, I understand international intrigue has a new Diplo Club that folks can join. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so this is for people who, you know, are signed up to the newsletter um, and tell their friends about us. It's a little perk that we've kind of come up with and and we're developing as as we go along to reward people for sharing spreading the word about, uh, about the newsletter. Um, essentially at the moment, it's a, it's a members only podcast where a few of us will get together and answer questions from, uh, members of the club. So people who've got burning questions about, you know, what's going on in the news or they want us to do their homework for them or something, um, can, uh, can sign up and we'll, and we'll do our best to answer them. Having said that, I wouldn't use our answers for homework, but, um, So yeah, there's that. And then there's a WhatsApp group that we're trialing just a place to kind of drop notes in, drop interesting articles, like super informal, but hopefully the idea is to kind of build up a couple, you know, a couple hundred folks into a WhatsApp group where, who are all interested or working in this space, Um, you know, just to kind of create a community. If I've got a question about trade, someone can ask you, or, you know, if someone's got a question about something else where there's an expert in the group. Just an informal place to share ideas and information, really. So you can get access to that. Obviously, you have to be signed up to the newsletter. So everyone should go do that who hasn't done that um, at internationalintrigue.io. And once you've done that, you have to share with five folks, I think. You You get a little code in the newsletter and you just send that to your friends on WhatsApp or email it around. And when five of your friends join, it's all free, by the way, so it doesn't cost you anything. Um, once five of your friends join, you'll get access.
0: I'm, I'm in the WhatsApp group and I'm really enjoying it and finding it hugely useful. It's really cool to interact with international intrigue readers who are all sort of super engaged on this stuff and geek out. I did have one burning question though. Is the reason you decided to go with a WhatsApp group rather than a Discord so that we didn't get infiltrated by the CIA on day one?
1: That's the only reason.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: Discord is a place where we can't do the leaking that we're doing on WhatsApp. You see, um, you know, we're leaking serious, seriously uh, top secret documents in the WhatsApp.
0: I thought it was weird when you shared the launch codes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's. See, th- these are the, these are the perks you get from signing up. Um, well, I don't know, deep responsibilities too. Um, no, but more seriously, the reason we went with WhatsApp is a very banal reason. It's just that it, most people have it on their phone already. Um, you know, I I certainly don't think WhatsApp's the most um, you know the most ideal place to kind of have group chats because it you know I've, I'm in plenty of massive groups where people just overrun it and it becomes unwieldy. We're doing our best to kind of moderate it and and keep it kind of tight and tidy and interesting. So far, so good. Um, but and the, the the driving reason was like. I reckon 95% of people don't know what Discord is. We didn't want to be in Slack because um, too much like work. <laughs> uh, people who are in, in Slack for their work might associate it with bad stuff. So it's just kind of like everyone has it on their phone. Give it a look every so often. Maybe that's the best way to go forward. But if if a better solution emerges in the future, we are we are flexible.
0: Good to know. With that, I think it's a good spot to move on to our first story of the week. As always, John and I go through international intrigue, which I read every day, and John, I suppose, writes every day, which feels like cheating. But doesn't read. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't read. And we pick out one story that we are particularly focused on, interested in, and just want to share with you. This week, for me, it was an absolute no-brainer. Earlier in the week, units of two russian paramilitary units based in ukraine the freedom of russia legion and the russian volunteer corps staged a violent incursion through a checkpoint on the ukrainian russian border into russia with the stated aim of overthrowing the kremlin was i suppose the the calling card now From what we know, there were probably about 80 of them. So I don't think they expected to take Moscow necessarily. Though, you know, the Russian army hasn't shown itself to be overwhelmingly competent. But effectively, they penetrated... In at least one place, it's looking like up to three places along that long border. In their initial incursion, they took several villages and initially set up defensive positions. And this is where things get incredibly fog of worry. There were for days vastly conflicting reports about How many of them there are, where they are, whether they have all been killed, whether they have retreated, whether their vehicles have all been blown up, whether they are driving American vehicles, whether those American vehicles have been blown up. The Russian Ministry of Defense, as it does, was putting out photos and videos that basically suggested They had killed each of these people 143 times, including some suspiciously neat kind of Humvee looking things inside craters without a scratch on them. Meanwhile, the spokespeople of these two legions were putting out videos with their own vehicles saying, "Uh, I don't know who you blew up, but this is me and my truck. As you can see, it's still very much alive. So as far as we can tell, the, at least the initial incursion is now over. We don't know how many casualties they took. We don't know whether they managed to successfully extract all of their gear, but that is where we are.
1: So I've got a couple of questions about this because it's a, it's a kind of a wild story, and you are very familiar with many things in this Ukraine invasion. Um, first question is: When we say incursion, did they literally just walk across the border and kind of like say hi, we're here, and set up defensive positions and wait for the Russian army to kind of come and get rid of them? Like, was or, or were they battling village to village, kind of in in, in a sort of actual? you know, military encounter.
0: So as far as we can tell, and with all caveats about sort of fog of war and propaganda in place. Right. What's your sense, I guess, is the question. What appears to have happened is the Russians deployed vast amounts of static defences all across, all along that border. Right. Uh, And so what these folks appear to have done is bypassed all of those defences by just driving up to a border checkpoint shooting the people there in the head and then proceeding through, given that there were no defenses in the actual checkpoint. This is, as best we can tell, they simply just overran a checkpoint. What's completely unclear is why they were able to do that. Um, The casualties appear to be from the Russian border guards, but when you're at war with a country, you would typically have some troops at border checkpoints into that country and it's not clear that the russians did at that point they were inside russia and they started making some relatively rapid advances they took a couple of villages with a low degree of opposition before they finally encountered sort of russian forces en masse And then it's not entirely clear what happened after that, except it seems like there were about a day and a half of combat.
1: Right. Okay. So that makes sense to me. And I mean, this is not where the main front is. So, you know, I guess it makes sense that there wasn't like a massive concentration of troops right on the border. But Belgorod, which is, I guess, the town or the the city, the Russian city closest to where they crossed, right? Near Kharkiv. That's, uh, from what I understand, home to, uh, or at least what I read, um, home to some Russian nukes, right? Tactical nukes. And I saw some reports of them evacuating those nukes or is that was that fog of war misinformation stuff?
0: So this is all this is all again very murky. Yes, there is a there is a base in that region that at one point we believe housed Russian tactical nuclear weapons, so the kind of nuclear weapons that are deployed in combat. Mm. it is entirely unclear whether those were evacuated a year ago which some reports suggest or like three days ago i'm probably inclined to believe a year ago because keeping them there was with ukrainian helicopter staging rates i was gonna, a-
1: my next question to you was that <laughs> it was basically like what is the advantage of keeping nukes in a place that is clearly undefended and very close to the ukrainian border but okay that so the, we don't know and it's probable that they weren't there
0: yeah we don't know i would never rule out complacency arrogance disorganization or stupidity where the russian ministry of defense is concerned i think they've given us ample reason over the last year and a half never to just never to underestimate those factors (laughs) but i suspect they probably weren't there i also don't think there was any chance of 80 guys seizing a russian no no nuclear missile base like i think we have to We have to assume that was probably a harder target than a bunch of villagers on the border or this checkpoint. What I think what it does it demonstrates a couple of things, um, and I guess the significance of this, you know, this two day raid. Firstly, it applies pressure on the Russians. This border that they have with Ukraine is something like six to eight hundred kilometers long, right? And if you've got forces that can at any point cross anywhere and go on a raid rampage you have to keep forces in reserve to deal with them you have to harden those borders and the russians would very much prefer to keep their forces in the southeast where they know the ukrainian counterattack will come that's the first point of this the second point is there is unfortunately an uncomfortable far right element to this, Bellingcat's reporting into some of the members involved in these groups. It just suggests just, that they're. Just very are
1: quickly, Belling- Bellingcat's that Dutch investigative kind of AusInt open source investigative unit who are really, really good at figuring out what went on via open source stuff. Sorry, I just wanted to yeah. give some context there.
0: Absolutely. They're phenomenal. They're the guys who literally like track down individual soldiers right. responsible for MH17. They found. The, the leaker in the u.s within a day of the fbi working out who he was these guys did it with just his Adnaklasniki profile like they're, they're very good at what they do and so they've actually been reporting on some of the characters involved in these groups for a while and they have some some of them have some pretty right-wing affiliations incredibly incredibly nazi-ish <laughs>
1: That's not a thing you hear often. Incredibly Nazi-ish.
0: I mean, yeah. It all gets messy. <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. They're very
1: far-right yeah.
0: nationalist kind of. Kind of. One of, them, one of them was arrested for distributing copies of the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto translated into local languages. Yeah. Not, by all accounts, good guys, or at least all of them. There is a debate to be had about whether if a bunch of Russian Nazis want to gear up and head into Russia to shoot Russian soldiers, why wouldn't Ukraine facilitate that? There is that argument. On the other hand, it means you're giving weapons and being in bed with some pretty unsavory characters.
1: So Okay, that, and, and we've got to move on. So like super quick, 60 seconds. But um, that was my last question to you was like, to what extent does your gut tell you that the Ukrainian government kind of sanctioned these folks? Like, obviously they're aware of this stuff, but do you think it was? are they, co- are they coordinating? Oh, yeah. Or is it more just kind of like, you don't tell us what you're doing and we will turn a bl- blind eye?
0: I, I think there is no way... These guys were way too heavily armed, way too equipped. They definitely had armored vehicles. They knew where to strike. They knew where to go. It feels like they were supported by artillery. I think the Ukrainians won't send their own troops with these guys because they want to maintain deniability. But I think there is absolutely no doubt that they are using these folks as proxies or as agents of chaos on the grounds that every single Russian soldier these guys shoot is one that won't be there defending Bakhmut, And these guys are going out, causing chaos, causing stress, hurting the credibility of the Russians. And I think the Ukrainians are very comfortable with that, as well as massively enjoying the irony of Russia having armed equipped led and ginned up rebels in Donetsk and Luhansk including sending their own forces in for 8 years and now being able to turn around to the Russians and say you know why don't you why don't you negotiate and sign a Minsk protocol with the Belgorod People's Republic guys so there's a trolling aspect to this which can't be understated So that's a good place to move on to a story I'm really looking forward to to hearing more about because I only read about it in passing in intrigue. I somehow missed it everywhere else. But Facebook, or rather Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has eaten a... Massive fine. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, I I think it's a it's
1: a good place to start with me. I'm probably going to say Facebook out of habit, but what I mean here is Meta. Um, I'll I just I'll try to use Meta, but if I don't, I mean Meta. Uh, But anyway, uh, so the the very high the top the top sort of level of this story is that Meta was hit with a fine by EU regulators. I think Irish regulators, if if I recall correctly, Um, they 1.2 billion euros, um, and they are ordered to stop transferring european data to the us across the atlantic. So it's the biggest fine in eu data protection history. Um, you know it's a, it's a lot of money. Let's let's be honest it's not a hell of a lot of money to facebook. I mean it's not nothing, but it's you know it's something that is well within their ability to kind of absorb, but it is a giant fine and it's a signal more broadly to tech companies that the eu is very serious and that you and that they need to take this issue seriously. Okay. So what's the issue? The issue is essentially that tech companies um, collect information on EU citizens, you know, that that sounds nefarious and a lot of reporting on this I think is really negligent because it kind of oh they're collecting data they're spying. Look, I don't I'm not saying that Facebook is a great company or a you know, an upstanding moral citizen of the world, but let's be real, they collect information to target advertising. That's what they're doing. But they are collecting information on who the accounts are on like so that they can target the advertising so they have stuff like age you know work history or all the things that facebook knows about you um and they collect that on eu citizens and then f- from a decades-long practice i think designed mostly because of the tech um the tech considerations of you know da- data centers and latency and you know all these kinds of issues they transfer that they transfer that data back to the u.s to kind of process it and build a picture of who their users are The EU, I think very reasonably says we don't have any control over what American companies do with data in America because it's in America uh, and we're not comfortable with that. So we're going to stop it. Um, I think it's a reasonable position to take. Uh, Facebook threatened to, you know, if if they aren't allowed to transfer data out of the EU to their US processing centers, they will pull out of the EU. I think that's one of those things that you know, a teenager does. Like, well, if you're not going to let me do that, I'm just going to lock myself in my room. It's kind of like one of those tantrum throwing things. Like, let's be real. It's it's not going to happen. I think they contribute, the EU contributes about 20 to 25% of Facebook's, or sorry, Meta's revenue. So, you know, they'll find a way to make this work. But I think the interesting part of this is it's something I've been banging on a lot about um, over at Intrigue and, you know, anyone who listened to me is that the internet is changing with geopolitics. Um, It's something that people don't appreciate, I don't think, but the fundamental model of Silicon Valley tech companies of much of the world as we know it, digital world as we know it, is designed around these dynamics of when you build a product, the whole world is your potential market, maybe excluding China and North Korea and Iran and a couple of, you know, Russia now. Um, But most of the world, almost all of the world is your... Is your oyster. You can build a business with 10 engineers sitting in a basement and you can make a hundred billion dollars. That's literally what Facebook did, right? EU is showing, I think, very clearly and getting ahead of the curve, but it's happening in India, it's going to happen in Brazil, it's certainly happening in Russia and other places, that the world is moving towards a more Nash, a more nationalized series of internet playgrounds if you know what I mean I'm not describing it very well but the idea that the EU will be an internet with its own companies the India Indian ecosystem will be one um, just like the Chinese ecosystem is one right like there are there's a lot of companies in China that do exactly what Silicon Valley companies do but they have the Chinese market um, and I think you know
0: suspiciously just- similar
1: <laughs> suspiciously similar Yeah, exactly but it's very interesting <laughs> because what happens to the global, technology industry and market and and development and funding models and capital markets if the f- if the model that has defined the world for the last 20 years is no longer uh th- no longer the one that dominates the world i mean for example international intrigue if we can't reach european citizens because we are based in america and our our, our um our website's are hosted in the us can we just not access the eu anymore i mean that makes our business look very different so yeah, I'll leave it there. But it's, it's, it's a really big deal, I think.
0: John, do I have your permission to get very slightly to incredibly trade wonky on this for a minute? Go for it. So We'll, we'll keep it tight, but go for it. The US and the EU, as well as others, have been having incredibly contentious conversations about two aspects of what you're talking about for a decade. One concept is called data localization. And one is called data flows. And they come at them from two wildly different points of view. So, data localization is basically the idea of like, where is your Facebook account stored? Literally, where is the, the data center where just your, for even just your Facebook account, those bytes of data are stored? Do they have to be in your country? That's the data localization question. And then there is the data flows question. To what extent can companies move your data across borders? And the US takes, generally speaking, a much more non-interventionist approach to these questions. They're basically like, unless there's a really good reason not, not to allow it, it should be allowed. Whereas the EU, for a range of privacy reasons, has always been a lot more cautious, And then individual countries have been super, super, super cautious, like insisting that Meta build a data center in their country and that like Turkish Facebook accounts have to be stored on it. And so exactly what John was describing, these, these two kind of individual concepts are going to more and more come into conflict. As you have on the one hand, voters increasingly skeptical about the powers of giant tech companies to run our lives and know everything about us on the one hand on the other hand you have this global competition for where the tech unicorns are going to be uh and europe's frankly hasn't done that great on that score in part because of this more protective form of regulation though not entirely and culturally too i think it's
1: just not a place where A Silicon Valley could really have sprung up. Real, I don't think. That's my view.
0: Starting a company is harder. Bankrupting a company is far more painful. There are capital is harder to find. Yeah, employees are harder to find. There's there's a thousand reasons, but basically these two things are going to come into contact, and even sort of probably the biggest potential disruptor of it had been the EU's GDPR. Its giant data kind of privacy protection regulatory suite and the us and the eu kind of put a band-aid on that where the eu said okay you haven't adopted gdpr but we think your we think your laws are broadly fine with some exceptions and so we won't go after your companies yet and that's frame too
1: and what i will say there the gdpr is a little it's 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 very similar but it's it's a standard that everyone can abide by. So for an American company without you can still access the EU market. If you just go, all right, one off, we, we put up that consent stuff. We manage, we, we, we abide by the laws and then we can access the market. We do it once. And then we, and then it's good for forever. Whereas this is a little bit different because it's kind of like, as you just said, like data centers. There's infrastructure costs, and you know, again, for Facebook and for Google and for the the trillion dollar unicorns, it's it's going to annoy them, and they're going to have to reorder their business or make decisions. But it's more for the smaller media tech businesses where it's simply not. Particularly feasible to kind of go, okay, I'm going to deal with the regulatory complexity of accessing 17 different markets around the world. What does that do to their business model? It's it's an un, unknown question, I
0: think. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating that the fines are creeping upward. They are. I think the the first wave of fines over all of this stuff was so small, it was kind of like you know Mark Zuckerberg takes out the pocket change in his car keys and just kind of throws it over. Um, which, now- which
1: sent a signal that this stuff isn't serious, right? Like now, this signal, if you start to hit Facebook, not that they can't afford it, but other companies go, well, proportionally, if we were hit with a, a fine of, you know, even 10% of that, we're done for, you know, many times over. So I think it's just kind of like people going, oh, okay, shit.
0: And we should say, yeah, they can afford it, but, you know, I think Meta's cutting 10,000 jobs. In in these kind of quarters. It's a lot of money, yeah. So it's not like they feel like they are flush with cash and can afford to take nine-figure losses whenever. Um, So I think this is going to hurt, and it's something to watch.
1: Yeah, let me me add one last point. I think this is – I I have a theory, too, that the EU, you know, it wants to be a third pole of power between America and China and and this geopolitical kind of – um, posturing to sort of see how the future is going to play out. And I am fairly convinced that the EU sees its superpower. If, if America's superpower is kind of cultural ubiquity and free markets and Silicon Valley and wealth, and China's is more like development model, strong, you know, um, controls. This is how you bring 800 million people out of poverty. The EU's kind of, I think, pitch to the world or pitch to like what they can kind of, uh, contribute to the the global development is that we're the regulatory superpower. We will figure all this stuff out. We will make sure that, you know, you guys can navigate the complex world of how you keep your people happy, how you don't harm them. Um, and you just have to copy paste our regulations because they work. And I think that's what they see as their kind of almost competitive advantage in a world where, as we said, they can't hope to pick, compete with the U.S. on on capitalism. They can't hope to compete and they shouldn't want to compete with China on control and efficacy. And and maybe this is their idea of where they can be really, you know, persuasive and and powerful.
0: Uh, It absolutely is. And I know this from speaking to EU officials, the way that they think about this stuff is the European Union tackles these gigantic questions first and we establish the standard. And even when others like the US decide to go a slightly different way, they are often walking in our footsteps and just deciding where at the 80% mark they'll go a different direction because our system is good at unraveling complexity and finding a balance, whereas other systems aren't. You can absolutely dispute that when it comes to the European Union. And I know no shortage of tech people who like read every new thing out of the European Parliament and are like, have you people you ever, like, about? use the yeah. computer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that is true that is true of tech people and legislators everywhere. So but that you're absolutely right. That's a EU's view. Yeah. Makes sense. And it, and that
1: is a great way to have you have a lot of power if that's the case, if if the way you framed it of like, we set the rules for most of the world and then a few people divert because they want to be you know a little bit different. But like, we're the ones who are charting the path forward. That is a serious amount of influence.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Provided provided you are still being followed is I think the caveat. At the moment, the European Union is often followed because they have 500 odd million consumers and because they're often the first movers. Once... That is no longer enough. You might be in a different space. And that might be a good place to leave it and move on to our main debate topic for the day and for the show. The question of whether we should be in the West banning the media channels of countries that are our foreign adversaries. And I know we we had some definitional discussions before we started. Yeah, John, Let's talk about what we are talking about versus what we're not talking about. So one thing I wanted to rule out immediately is platforms that aren't themselves content creators. So for example, TikTok is a fascinating debate. But I don't think it's what we're discussing today because TikTok doesn't make its own content. So I think let's move that out the of people scope. Of,
1: good people of Montana who recently just passed a ban on TikTok in the state would disagree with you, but it's not entirely clear to me how they're going to ban TikTok. But yes, I completely agree with you. It's, it's a different beast to a publishing content, yep. news, whatever provider.
0: That doesn't mean necessarily like we, you shouldn't ban TikTok. But no, 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 just for the purposes of this discussion, we'll shove it to the side. It's just not part of this conversation. Yeah. And then we had a bit of a discussion before we started. We want to rule in both overtly government run foreign adversary media channels and ones where, you know, maybe the ownership is ostensibly private, but there is a sense that a foreign adversarial government is pulling the strings, calling the shots, that kind of thing.
1: Is that fair, John? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's right. So, I mean, this is a difficult, difficult definitional thing to get your head around, which, you know, I don't want to... It takes me back to my days of schoolboy debating where you spend about 90% of the debate defining the Oxford Dictionary meaning of, you know, whatever. But but more seriously, I think um, it is interesting because, you know, the BBC is technically taxpayer-funded, state-run, or at least very, very heavily state-influenced, but I don't think anyone who's serious would say that the BBC is what most people mean when they say state news or state media, right? We're thinking more there about the Global Times or the People's Daily in China or RT, to your point, in Russia or, you know, the, whatever. The, I forget the name of the one in North Korea or Iran or these kinds of things. And there are so many areas of gray, like what what is a technically an independent news organization that has government oversight on its editorial board versus one that is just genuinely like propagandist. So we'll talk around those issues. And I think there's a lot of gray, but um, I I guess I'm, I'm, so I'm going to take the no, we shouldn't ban it position. Um, And I think the first point to make there, I'm really, this is a, we've ruled out TikTok, but in a way it is a similar argument of how do free and open societies deal with this inherent vulnerability that, non-free adversarial or authoritarian whatever you want to call them these kinds of regimes can take advantage of that freedom and that ability to do you know whatever you want really they can take advantage of that and do real harm that that's the overlying question of like how do you manage your own freedom without being taken advantage of and you know there are plenty of places to draw that line one of them is foreign state-owned media but i think the point that i would start to make is that where do you we've just talked about the grayness and the kind of ambiguity where do you draw the line i think twitter has seen a massive problem with labeling these kinds of things if you ban rt do you ban um, the dissident what you'll, you'll remind me the dissident, um, Mo, is it Moscow news or the, the one that's run out of Lithuania or wherever it is that was previously in Moscow? and presumably well, it was independent, but presumably they had to play by the rules to not get you know not get in trouble with the Russian government and then until the war, then they left and obviously went you know a different direction. I think Medusa might be the name of it. Um, you know it, I know in China there some former friends of mine who used to run a newspaper called Sixth Tone, which did some fantastic kind of independent reporting around cultural issues and whatnot. Um, And they heavily worked with the Public Security Bureau and the censors in China to make sure they weren't going to piss anyone off. Now, is that, would you ban those folks? I I think the first point I'd make is just like, where do you draw the line? And I don't think it's possible to draw a line. So you're better off not drawing one.
0: I guess my counterpoint to that is that almost any policy involves some arbitrary drawing of lines why is the voting age 18 uh you know and not 17 months 17 years 11 months you know why is 0.5 0.05 blood alcohol level safe to drive but 0.06 isn't sure there are going to be line ball calls and we are going to get some of them wrong uh, we are going to revisit some. At times, we will go too far. At times, we will not go far enough. To the examples that you've cited, whether it's Medusa, there was Rain TV going for a while. Rain, yeah. When I when I when I talk to some of my Ukrainian friends, who understandably are incredibly, uh, incredibly invested in in this conflict, they their view is kind of ban everything. Uh, if it, if it's being made by a russian person anywhere it is a tool of russian imperialism and it has overtones of russian imperialism so if you ask them they would say ban everything whereas others would say you know rain tv was quite critical of the war so there are going to be debates there are going to be line ball calls i don't necessarily think the fact that we will have to make some arbitrary judgments is in and of itself a reason not to do this especially because when you are talking and you sort of tease this i think you tried to frame it as kind of a free speech kind of issue i'm, I'm careful not to use that that's necessarily what this is
1: no i don't think well it's not a free speech issue in the sense of like what people mm-hmm. love to bang on about it but it is a but it is a cultural value question of, of of basically like being allowed to say and do and you know find viewpoints Across the spectrum, without a an, a government or someone in a position of power making those decisions for you, so it's I don't want to call it free speech because I hate how people devolve like have a have no understanding of what that actually means and b how it devolves into just everyone screaming at each other. But I, but I do think it it is sort of one and the same in the idea of we don't ban stuff we don't like. We that's not what our cultural and societal values do, and I think we've learned over a long period of time that one. I, I accept your point about you have to draw a line somewhere. I think the, the pushback on that is who draws that line and where do they draw that line? And we we don't the, all the questions you've made, uh, all the points you've made about where we like you know situations that we do draw lines in society, we have very clear mechanisms for doing it, and their accountability and they're able to be changed through votes. It's not clear to me that banning state or foreign media sources is. The same kind of thing. Like it's done in America, at least by order of executive action. Now, I guess you can remove a president, but let's be realistic. Like, let's be realistic. These things aren't going to change. If RT is banned in the US, it's going to stay banned for a long time. Um, And there are people making those decisions who are unaccountable. So I think that's one issue. And I don't think it's the biggest issue, but it does lend some sort of uh, weight to my uncomfortableness with banning or like governments banning things in free societies because we don't like the content. And the second point to make on that there is it, we know it doesn't work. We know that banning, in, particularly in the era of the internet, banning state media from being able to broadcast into an American um, cable provider or onto the internet, it doesn't work. The people who are gonna find this stuff find it anyway. We know that on Facebook. We know it's whack-a-mole. So what you are giving up is you're giving power to the government to kind of censor what you hear from abroad. And again, that matters where you draw the line. And secondly, we know it doesn't stop people who want to find this stuff finding it. It just kind of gives the illusion of safety without it actually being
0: true. So I think two points, and I want to take them both because I think they're both really important. On maybe let's take the government kind of deciding what we can and can't see. I disagree that the government doesn't already do that. There is an established principle. I can't screen a snuff film at 3 pm on CNN. The censors would step in and stop me. We as a society, almost anywhere, almost everywhere, have made the decision that certain forms of certain forms of content are harmful to consumers. And it is appropriate for the government to curtail either entirely or to heavily segment where and how they are displayed on public broadcast channels. And I think there is, uh, while I appreciate it's kind of a sociological argument, and you can argue it many different ways, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that some of the content on channels like RT, which is explicitly explicitly and strategically designed to divide western societies to lie in ways that turn them against each other to advent to basically degrade uh western society and western institutions are could be viewed as in the same category of harm as explicit pornography or uh, other forms of content that we censor so i don't you can absolutely debate whether that's an appropriate whether well, that's an appropriate comparison. But what I guess I would push back on is the idea that just because there would be some arbitrary choices involved or just because the very act of the government stepping in and saying, you can't put that on the ABC, that that is somehow unthinkable and egregious because I think we do it all the time. So that's kind of on, on that argument. On the accessibility argument, uh, cut... I actually don't necessarily um, agree that people will... Some people will certainly find it anyway. Um, You know, some people, somebody pointed out that, you know, people in Australia sometimes commit gun crimes, even though guns are illegal, people manage to find guns. But, for example, if you look at the audiences of the two right-wing hosts that preceded Tucker in that slot on Fox News... Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck. They both retained some audience when they were kicked off this massive platform of a cable news site that was beamed into people's homes and dental surgeries. But it completely fell off a cliff. You know, it, it was them in their basement with a thing, and yes, you can find them on YouTube when they don't get kicked off YouTube. But like the, the number of people who can who will access that content, Deplatforming kind of worked on those guys.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a different. I mean, it's not different, but it's there is a different element to that. Given that Fox News is kind of uh, that's a distribution question, which I suppose you're still arguing that you know RT shouldn't be distributed into homes and dental surgeries. I'm glad, I'm glad that you raised Fox News because I think that's my th- my third one of my third biggest points is that it feels arbitrary then to define based on private or public ownership because all the things you just said that RT does, and we're using RT as a proxy for general overseas, adversary, state-owned, propaganda-ish news news outlets. But there are a lot of people who will argue that Fox News does pretty similar things, divides the American country, it pits people against each other, it tries to actively undermine institutions that aren't working for it. Um, And, you know, let me be generous because, you know, uh, whatever, let's go even further to the to the side and say OAN or any of these other networks that have cropped up that are even more extreme than, than uh, and
0: people on the other side of the spectrum would say that about MSNBC and exactly and, and Young like Turks and there's
1: and there's plenty Stephen
0: Colbert or something
1: it's not a, it's exactly. not a left versus right argument so much as a Pitting each other, pitting against each other, media argument, and, and this stuff happens internally. It happens in countries we agree with, GB News in the UK. Like, there's there's plenty of this stuff going on without needing to ban RT. So where where do you draw the lines there? You you've kind of said RT RT's content should be banned because it's specifically designed to divide Western societies. Is the is the fact that they're Russian passport holders the the biggest problem then? And then does that mean that our our media companies can divide our societies? happily, but they just have to be holding a passport of their own country. Is that like where do you draw the line there?
0: I think the distinction there, and I appreciate it is a fine one, but I do think it is there, is that Fox News is depending on how you how generous you want to be, either a purely commercial enterprise that is simply trying to craft the message that it thinks will sell with a certain segment of the, American, uh, of the American public. Or you can argue it is fundamentally following the, the... It's an American corporation that is being steered by the Murdoch family, who are, I guess are Australian, but at least sort of... Australia's not an, a foreign government adversary. RT is not fundamentally a commercial enterprise making commercial decisions, though it makes some. It is explicitly carrying out the will of an adversarial power and i do think that there is a distinction between those two things Um, fundamentally americans arguing about conflicting visions for what america should be as part of american commercial or privately held enterprises for me is different than russia or china or someone else trying to push a narrative of what they would prefer the U.S. to be because it suits their domestic mm. interests.
1: So, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I think I think it's, it's just such a fine line and it feels arbitrary to me. And I know this is a point that you're going to disagree with, and, and rightly so, because you have more understanding of this. But I know a lot of conflict journalists, at least a couple who will explicitly say that the RT does accurate and needed reporting on things like American war crimes in the Middle East and Central Asia. Places where they have their influence, they have their contacts, they have an incentive to report it because they, you know, as you said, they are state-directed, all that kind of stuff. But American war crimes aren't getting reported by American news outlets. Fox News is is as aligned with the American government on that issue as, you know, the RT is aligned with the Kremlin on reporting American war crimes. So, Again, banning RT is in some way limiting the free and fair exchange of information that, 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 that our societies are premised on. I, I think what this comes down to is essentially like you're not trusting the American people, or the British people, or the Australian people, or whatever it is, to be able to understand the difference between bullshit and not. And like, I, I think it gives the pa- RT a lot more power to say, it's so dangerous, we must ban it, rather than like, these guys are total cranks. They are saying complete nonsense. They are one channel that is going to give you some, you know, crankish, cranky views, like real weird stuff. You've you you look out the window and you're like, that doesn't that doesn't look like the America or the Australia or the the Great Britain that I see. Um, I'm also I've been watching the BBC or MSNBC whatever it is for so long that I feel like it just does people a disservice to say. It's so dangerous. You can't hear it. And then also throws the baby out with the bathwater by saying like, maybe there are some things that they do well that people need to hear about that aren't happening here. And I appreciate that's an emotionally difficult argument to to like get behind because it's like, oh yeah, RT, we should be listening to them because they've got good things to say, but we have to be open to the idea that they will be right sometimes. And banning them means that you're kind of limiting where you get your information from. And that's something I'm never a fan of.
0: Yeah, I'd say a couple of things on that. I think, you know, investigative journalists, great. Uh, my personal preference is that, you know, somebody funded Vice properly so they didn't have to lay off all of their journalists. Um, I think there are plenty of Western journalists who do go after- When you after, say someone funded
1: Vice, who, like that's us. No one reads it because we don't well, want it. to.
0: Well, well, so this is this is part of the issue. Um, so my, my preference is that we had a healthy functioning ecosystem so that the thousands of journalists in the West who are committed to uncovering the truth, even when it's uncomfortable for their host governments, could actually do their jobs. Um, that would be That's kind of just an aside. That would be nice. I would secondly say that the problem with RT uncovering American war crimes is that because if you watch RT everything is an American crime up to and including the things that Wagner is currently doing in, you know, they, they will show pictures of Aleppo and then say, look what the U S did so that when RT does uncover some kind of genuine, genuine signs of crime, it's, it's hard to pass what's real and what's not because everything they blast out comes from that agenda. So I think they undervalued the work of their own Reporters, because would you trust something on RT? I mean, no, but like, what are you so
1: like? What are we so scared about? Like, are we scared that half of, half of America is going to believe that like actually Russia is a really good place and that Ukraine is 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 a place that uh, should have been invaded because it was full of Nazis? Like, you've got enough Americans who are saying that anyway without RT without having to ban RT. I
0: mean, forty six percent of Americans are believe that the election was stolen from trump right without russian
1: interference and like and you know you can get into like the russian nonsense but like but but
0: my point is that they believe that because that's what they have been told by a media ecosystem despite no shortage of voices in america saying hey this isn't true so clearly you can via a media ecosystem or via well-produced persuasive techniques convince people of things that are fairly absurd being fact-checked and counted every day on other channels clearly this stuff works and this argument that oh you know um we should just trust in the wisdom and yada 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 clearly there are some there have to be some limits to that if we were actually at war with russia like if u.s if the US and, and Russia were in a shooting war, there would be no question we would ban RT. I think there would be a, a question. I, I, I don't think- I, I, would, I would make the exact
1: same arguments that I'm making now about you think- that. I would, I, would say, I would say people can, can, can in, in, a, in a modern digital ecosystem, people can convince themselves of whatever the hell they want. They're going to find whatever the hell they want from a domestic market. And that banning foreign state-run media outlets or whatever we, whatever we decide to define them as- only makes them more powerful only makes their um like makes them lose grip on reality in the sense that they have to kind of vaguely be sensible to american audiences because they want to kind of be believed and doesn't achieve anything it literally like you will still find people parroting that stuff anyway like i i just i think what i I feel like what what it is is, and and in no way I'm do I disagree with what you're saying, but like it feels a very emotional argument to be like they ban us, they control the ecosystem, so w- why would we let them take advantage of our freedom because they're just pumping filth in? And I think one of the biggest things that we're grappling with in, and I'm again I'm using all of this like general terms, but like free societies, is that it doesn't feel good to stick to these kinds of principles that have defined Western society for, let's say, you know, since the Enlightenment, it doesn't feel good to stick to them when people are trying to actively take advantage of them. But we can't beat authoritarian organizations at their game. We can't control a media or ecosystem like they can. People will get around it. People will find their own views. You've just said, you know, 46% of people don't believe that Trump lost the election. That's because an American... Presidential candidate refused to say he lost an election. And Fox News said, no, you didn't lose it. Good on you. And that's, and that's like, that's not RT's doing. That, that 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 happens anyway. So banning it doesn't achieve anything, but it does make us lose part of what we are, which is, okay, yep, good or bad, all the information's there. Take responsibility for it and figure out what you believe. And if you if you believe that Russia is a great place and it invades Ukraine. Well that's that's kind of what it means to live in a free society. I don't agree with you and I think it's you know if you act on anything if you do something illegal like you know supply arms to Russia or if you do things that you're not allowed to do by law that's a different question. But consuming having the wrong opinions about what's going on in Ukraine is not a crime and it shouldn't be a crime and you should be allowed to think what you want as uncomfortable and as upsetting and as ridiculous as that is. And I think the minute you start going down banning organizations, it's a it's a it's a risky, it's a risky place to go. That's my view.
0: Listen, I hear you. And as I said at the start, I'm conflicted about this as well. I guess where I come down on it is firstly, I agree we shouldn't necessarily be we shouldn't be banning people for having an opinion. And if an American wants to unilaterally start a YouTube show where he says that, you know, Ukraine's not a real country or we should all be speaking Mandarin because the CCP is the glorious leadership of the future, or whatever, then, yeah, they're entitled to that opinion and the government should not be coming down on them. But where I draw a distinction is that we know that there is literally a concept called information warfare that is literally something that, you know, like cadets are studying at West Point. And we are allowing foreign governments to wage informational warfare on us as you said unilaterally cuz they don't they block our every attempt to do it in even even in passive ways you know CNN doesn't wake up in the morning and decide it's going to wage information warfare on the Chinese communist party the chinese communist party just doesn't want certain kinds of broadcasts uh within their space but setting that aside if by allowing this, we are basically saying this is a type of warfare. We will, we are comfortable with you waging on our citizens, and we are going to do nothing about it, even though we know your intentions are malicious, and that you are following the following the instructions of a government that means our interests harm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't disagree,
0: and that's the strongest pitch. I can
1: yeah, make. I I don't disagree that it's information warfare, but I would just say that like. I don't think I don't think therefore not banning it means allowing it to happen. I think there are myriad tools to fight against disinformation and misinformation without going against the core fundamental values of our societies, which is freedom of information and the ability to like read and think and do what you want within, you know, like past laws, you know, legal boundaries. Um and as you said cadets are training how to how to identify it and and debunk it. We see Bill Burns at the CIA, I think, basically open up or invent a whole new brand of kind of military intelligence information. Let's call it de warfare or pushback against warfare um, by saying we're going to pre bunk things. Like those are the tools that we can ha- we have that we can continue to develop and that we can continue to educate folks on to to fight the information warfare. But in in a way, it's like I. <laughs> a terrible analogy would be like in in physical kinetic warfare Russians bomb the shit out of cities and 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 you know level civilian targets does that mean because they're doing that to our cities we should do it to their cities no you we you fight back in different ways just because they're using information warfare and they ban us do we fight back by banning them no we have different more nuanced tools that are more culturally aligned, more societally aligned with how we have chosen and believe the best systems are. And the minute you start doing things that like undermine the fundamental nature of Western open societies, you start to degrade Western open societies. When you start to say, we'll ban this, but not that. We'll ban this and not that. it's It really is, and I hate slippery slope arguments because they're really like lazy, but it is giving the tools to people in charge of us to make decisions on our behalf that we aren't really sure about. And 50 years, I don't know where that is.
0: Yeah, I guess I just come back to this point that we've already given them that authority in a number of ways. For me, this yeah, is a debate about what, what is whether we classify a foreign government's mouthpiece that is trying to destroy our society uh, to, to, to boost the another country whether we can classify that in the same category of damaging as other things and i think that's a contentious um contentious point I, I should say maybe this would be a good place to wrap up something we didn't talk about is some of those other tools you could potentially use whether those are warning labels the kind of community notes twitter has whether fact, are you know robust fact checking is do you set up a channel that literally just mirrors rt but it's just somebody going well that's wrong and here's why like you know that you could just switch to. that's one channel over all of those things are options but for me they would they're interesting to explore but for me they get into even more arbitrariness even more slippery slopes than than outright bans because they get really messy and complicated and i'm not sure they're effective yeah i think to be honest, fact, we've got quite a lot of data that says fact checking just doesn't right. work.
1: I think that's all very. Oh, I think that's all very fair, and I don't think there is a silver bullet answer. You know, one of the only things I remember from law school was this idea that like ninety nine percent of the cases that go before a judge are really easy to decide, but it's the one percent that sit in what they call a penumbra of doubt that like reasonable people can really disagree about them and not be wrong this is one of those issues. And I think when I have always thought about those problems, and, and you know there are lots of them, what do you do to solve those problems where I can't say, Dimitri, you're actually really wrong, and here's the facts why. I can be like, you have a different opinion to me, but I can't say you're wrong. I always zoom out and go back to the fundamental principles about what makes us, I'm um, again, us is kind of free democratic societies. What makes us free and democratic is that we don't ban things because we don't like them. We find other ways around it and we trust and we educate people to make their own decisions. And yeah, like that could be the way that we get marched, (laughs) marched off the cliff by the authoritarians in the next 50 years, because they successfully overtook our media ecosystems and turned us all into lemmings. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like I'd rather be, I'd rather go that way than have, you know, the American government, which let's again, be very clear, <laughs> has hidden a lot of stuff from a lot of people with a lot of power and has lied to the American people. I'm not comfortable giving them even more power to kind of choose what I see and what I don't.
0: Yeah. I guess a good place to end it is to say, really, this is a choice between two potential bad scenarios that might eventuate two bottoms of a slippery slope. Yes, exactly. Is the way that the West becomes authoritarian by handing the government ever greater authority to screen what we see in order to protect us from initially foreign influence and eventually who knows? Or is the way that our society is damaged or hurt because we naively allow foreign influence ops unlimited access to our own mass distribution channels with whatever consequences may flow from that. And I, and I, like you were saying, I think reasonable people can disagree on this. I think you and I have proved that deeply unreasonable people can disagree on this. Uh, and yeah. I think that's a fantastic place. I think that's to a perfect summary
1: of it, Dimitri. Yeah, it's a good place to end because you, you, you summed it all up.
0: Thank you all so much for joining us. I don't think we resolved this one, but hopefully we gave the issues a fair hearing. My name is Dimitri. With me is John. As always, we really encourage you to give us a like, a subscribe to reach out to us with ideas for more debates or bonus episodes we can do. And of course, subscribe to International Intrigue. And with that, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. here. just wanted to give a final huge shout out and thank you to international intrigues ethan plotkin who sound mixed and edited this podcast normally i have to do it and i'm sure you can tell he's far better at it thanks ethan